gospel and explaining kind of spiritual truths? Well, I think really it's that we all love a good story deep down, don't we? Yeah, I do. Either we read a good story or we might go to the cinema to watch a film or watch something on TV as well. But there's something about a story that really connects with us and that we can maybe identify with as well and we can identify with characters within stories. And this story is a really great one, I think. I think it's pretty much got everything you could want from any kind of Hollywood blockbuster that you might hear. You've got violence, you've got crime, you've got racial discrimination in here, hatred, neglect, unconcern, but then love and redemption and mercy, and best of all, an unexpected twist right at the end. So I think this was a really great story that Jesus told. But the first character we've got um, in this story um, is called in our NIE version an expert in the law. Um, would have been called a, a lawyer or a scholar. And he stood up to ask Jesus a question. Now, this kind of lawyer wasn't a where there's a blame, there's a claim kind of lawyer. This was a guy who was an expert in the law of uh, the Old Testament, of the people um, of Israel, the Jewish Old Testament law. And it's often said, or I've heard the story said um, about um, lawyers. There was, there was once a lawyer and a, and a surgeon and an engineer having an argument about who had the oldest profession, who went back the oldest in time. And the surgeon said, well, my, my uh, profession is the oldest because in Genesis chapter 2 it says that God created Eve from a rib of Adam and operated on him to create Eve. And the engineer said, no, 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 before that, in Genesis chapter 1, God created order, engineered order, out of chaos. And the lawyer said, well, who do you think made the chaos in the first place? <laughs> so we've alienated lawyers as well this morning. I'm sorry about that. But this was an expert in the law who came to Jesus to ask him a question. What did he want to know? He asked him about what must I do um, to inherit eternal life. He was essentially asking about having a share in God's coming kingdom. And he really wanted to know what Jesus, this kind of new rabbi who'd been going around teaching, what he was going to say about this. You know, was it about, you know, was he going to say kind of the party line about what had been taught about Israel's restoration in the land? Because throughout the scriptures of Israel, it was quite clear that obedience to the Torah or obedience to the law in the Old Testament um, was central for the inheritance in the land. So his real question was, what kind of kingdom is Jesus inaugurating? When he comes and does his teaching, what kind of kingdom is he talking about? Is it one where eternal life or the inheritance in the land is rooted in God's Old Testament law in the Torah? Is Jesus proclaiming something that's consistent with that? But Jesus turns the question back on the lawyer, in probably good lawyerly fashion, actually, and he answers a question with a question. And he says, well, what's written there? How do you read it? How do you understand it? Essentially, you're the expert, you tell me. And so the scholar, the lawyer, answers from the, the, the Jewish confession of, the, of faith, it was called the Shema, that they would have read at least twice a day, any good Jewish scholar would have done. And he answers from a couple of verses that we've got in the Bible. And basically says, love the Lord your God, all your heart, mind, strength, and also love your neighbor as yourself. 
And Jesus affirms this. says, yep, you got it right. That's what you need to do. And so the first question has been answered. Essentially, yes, Jesus is talking about a kingdom that is consistent with the Old Testament law. But the lawyer doesn't want to stop here. He carries on, it says here, to kind of justify himself or kind of, I guess, make sure he comes out on top in this kind of verbal discussion that he's having. So he asks to see if Jesus is going to say anything heretical when he asks him, well, who my neighbor is? And that was a there was much discussed in first century Judaism, apparently, about who your neighbor was. And it was pretty much, very much, that your fellow Jew was your neighbor. But anyone outside of that, a Gentile, a non-Jew, a foreigner, probably wasn't. And certainly not people they would have designated as sinners. Because if you show compassion or get involved with them, then you're essentially condoning their sin. So there was quite a narrow definition of who a neighbor was. And essentially his question wasn't really who, he didn't really want to know who my neighbor was. It appears actually he wants to know who is not my neighbor. I want to inherit eternal life. Who can I get away with still fearing and still distrusting and still inherit eternal life? So it was a bit of a twisted question there. And I guess Jesus could have continued this theological discussion um, through using scripture and whatever, but he decides for all his hearers around him, let's simplify this. So let's tell a story. And this is the story that we have here that is quite well known. A man goes on a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a well-known journey in those days. It is about 17 miles. It's, it, go, it is going down. So when it says it goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jerusalem's up high. It's about a descent of about 3,000 feet. So it's quite a steep climb down these 17 miles. It's a rocky, winding, boulder-strewn way. And it was a dangerous road. It was even known um, in those days by some people um, the bloody way because of, you know, you could get robbed when you went down there. You know, it's the sort of thing where if it was today, you know, it would have reviews on TripAdvisor that were definitely only one star. It wasn't the place to hang out. And this guy fell amongst robbers. He was beaten, he was robbed, he was left naked and half dead. He was in no position to help himself. And then we have the uh, familiar part of the story. We have these three characters that come by. The priest, the religious person of the day, the one who had been offering sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem. And because there were so many of them, many of them did live out in the villages um, and outside of Jerusalem. So he'd have probably been done his uh, job for the day or the week and was coming out of Jerusalem from the temple. Comes across this man. Now, For a priest to touch somebody, a corpse, somebody who was dead, was something that they really didn't want to do. It would make them unclean, and they would have to go through quite a rigorous schedule of cleanliness in order to be able to get back right again. So they would... Um, they would even have to, to, to burn sacrifices of, of heifers and things like this. It was a long seven-day process of making yourself clean or holy again if you'd ever come into contact with a corpse, if you'd been defiled or made unclean, as they would have said. So perhaps this is the reason that he doesn't get involved. Maybe he can't tell whether this man is alive or dead on the other side of the road lying in the ditch there. He doesn't want to make himself unclean. And he walks the other way. Maybe he's just scared of what's going to happen to himself. You know, if someone else has been beaten up by the side of the road, maybe these robbers are still around waiting for me. 
you know, someone, a priest who'd have been part of the, you know, one of the more upper classes, who's probably reasonably wealthy, might have had his own donkey and his own possessions, probably wanted to get out of there as fast as he can. And then we get a Levite, one of the, kind of we'd say maybe one of the lay helpers in the temple. They were, um, they used to collect the tithes and they were, they used to um, help lead the singing and be one of the musicians as well. So certainly one of the, the religious people of the day as well. And he would have had the same rules of purity as the priest would have had. So maybe he felt exactly the same thing. I don't want to make myself unclean with this corpse. Maybe I'm a bit scared about what's happening. He passes on the other side of the road as well. Do you notice they didn't fail, these two religious people, because they weren't religious. They failed in spite of their religion. They had religious belief, they had religious knowledge, they were involved in their religion, in their worship, but they didn't seem to have a relationship with the God that they claimed to follow, the God that they claimed to serve and to worship, because it wasn't working its way out in their everyday life in terms of care and compassion that God talks about. In Corinthians, in the New Testament, Paul um, says a verse that we often hear at weddings, actually, um, or we we hear the the rest of the passage, certainly, and he says, even if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, even if I'm the most spiritual person going, but I haven't got love, I haven't got actions to what my faith says, then I'm just like a, a clanging gong or a cymbal, just something that makes a noise in the background, isn't useful for anything as well. So that's what happened with these religious people. But what were the listeners, so the ordinary Jewish people that were hearing this story, what were they actually hearing at this time? Well, they'd have identified with the setting. They knew the road from Jerusalem to Jericho very well, and they would have known it was a dangerous road. Um, They might even have identified in some way with the robbers. There are stories of some of these robbers being kind of a little bit Robin Hoodish and being kind of the poor peasants of the land that would rob the rich and distribute amongst the villagers. Um, They would certainly have probably been feeling quite smug when the priest went by and when the Levites went by because there tended to be quite a bit of tension between the Jewish lower classes, the peasants, and those in the the higher classes, um, in the aristocracy and the priesthood there. So there wouldn't have been any love lost necessarily there. They didn't feel that the, the priests and those in that class maybe cared about their plight as much as they should do. So to see a priest and a Levi go past and not come out very well in this story, they were probably feeling quite smug about that. In fact, there's even, um, of that time, there's kind of folklore tales that go along a little bit a line of the old jokes that you used to hear, kind of there was an Englishman, an Irishman, and a Scotsman, blah 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 went into a pub, etc., etc., fill in the blanks for that. There used to be kind of folklore stories about, you know, a couple of people that were... um, that were from the the religious um, kind of sects, and then the tale would end up with an ordinary Jewish worker, an ordinary Jewish peasant that would come along and would save the day and be the hero of the day. So this wouldn't have been a kind of an unfamiliar story to them as well. But for them, this tale had a really shocking twist, because here comes the Samaritan, not some Jewish peasant to help save the day, but a Samaritan. And they hated the Samaritans. The Jews really did. There was no love lost between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Assyrians had captured, um, had captured Samaria a long time previously. They'd deported most of the Israelites um, of substance, and they settled the land with foreigners who intermarried with the Jews who were left there and were seen to have tainted their religion. 
They mixed it with kind of a paganism. So the Samaritans were seen by the Jews as something they would have great antagonism and hatred towards. So this really was a shock to have a Samaritan cast as the hero in the story. And that's where our modern kind of setting doesn't help us necessarily because today, Good Samaritan, it's come into our common parlance. We, we understand, or we think we understand, what's meant when somebody talks about a Good Samaritan. It's really been used nowadays to talk to anybody who helps out a stranger. They were a Good Samaritan. They stopped and they helped a stranger, somebody that they didn't know. In fact, we don't even use the word good necessarily. We know what a Samaritan is from that point of view. In fact, we've even got an organization called the Samaritans, you know, an organization that supports those that are in difficulty, finding difficulty coping with life and in direst need. It was set up by a vicar, a guy called Chad Vara, in 1953. They didn't actually call themselves the Samaritans. It was coined by the media. So actually the Daily Mirror found out about this that they were doing and called them the Good Samaritans. And then the word Samaritans stuck after that. But in the first century, if a Jew heard us using the word Samaritan in that way, kind of a good person who stops and helps someone, they'd have been horrified. They would have really cringed to have heard it said like that. And for us, I guess it would be like us redefining the word Nazi or terrorist to mean a person of good intentions and goodwill. So something like, my car broke down by the side of the road last night, but thankfully a good Nazi stopped by to help me. And if that sounds quite harsh and quite jarring to our ears, then it should, because that's the kind of thing the original hearers of this parable were hearing when Jesus used their hated enemy as the one who had compassion, the one who had hero. So that's why it's important we try and understand the context of what we read in the Bible, just to hear what's being what's being said in the original and what the original hearers would have heard. So what did the Samaritan do? It says here he took pity or literally had compassion um, upon the person. Again, this word compassion was something that was used of God in the Old Testament, a God of compassion, the same word used here. So again, the hearers would have heard, wow, this Samaritan's being given a descriptive word that's usually only referred to God as well. And he allowed himself, this Samaritan, to be moved by the man's plight, but not just moved, not just emotionally moved, but he took action. He went out of his way. He used his own resources, his own oil, his own wine, his own bandages, his own donkey, his own money. The amount of money he paid to the inn was about two days' wages, which in those days would have paid for somebody to stay in an inn very comfortably for a good couple of months. And he was in it for the long haul as well. He said, when I return, and as he'd given that amount of money, we assume he probably came back a couple of months later, he still cared about the man for a period of time. The same risk was there for the Samaritan as the risk had been for the priest and the Levite. The robbers still could have been about. They could have attacked him as well. Some of the Samaritans still followed the Torah, so he could have you know, been under the same uh, spell of uncleanness as the um, priest would have been. But his attitude was different. It's quite a famous um, sort of mini-sermon by Martin Luther King the day before he was assassinated, and he actually preached on the, uh, on the Good Samaritan. You can hear it still, still online if you want to find it. And Martin Luther King says in his speech, the difference is 
the priest and the Levite thought about what will happen to me if I do get involved. But the Samaritan thought, what will happen to him if I do not? What will happen to me if I do get involved as opposed to what will happen to him if I don't get involved? So we go back to the original question and the original quote that the lawyer uses from the scriptures about loving your neighbour as yourself. And what does that mean? Because to love as ourselves is to want the best for ourselves, surely. That's how we love ourselves. We want the best for ourselves in terms of our physical needs. We want to look after our bodies and feed ourselves and clothe ourselves and house ourselves. We want the best for ourselves. We want to love ourselves by providing economically for ourselves and for our loved ones. Hopefully, if we want the best for ourselves, we want to be engaged in fulfilling friendships with families or friends or partners to experience love, both to give and to receive. That was what it was to love oneself. And the scripture is saying here, love your neighbour as yourself. I think the listeners had inadvertently, the listeners of this original parable had inadvertently shown their kind of disdain in their attitude for others towards their religious leaders and for others who were different to them, the Samaritans in this case. They hadn't wanted the priest and the Levi to be the hero of the story, but equally they certainly didn't want the Samaritan to be the hero of the story. Can you see where their attitude in their heart was to those people. I think that's what Jesus was driving at in this parable. Because Jesus indicated through this that God's love is for all. All people made in the image of God, whoever they are, whatever nationality are, whatever their beliefs are. They're special to him. And the Bible tells us that he came to bring his love for all. Try to sum up for us today. What does it have to say to us, this parable from 2,000 years ago? Well, who are those people that we find it hard to be neighbourly towards? Those who are different to us in some way, perhaps. Maybe people with different social skills to us that we find it difficult to converse with. Maybe those who have got different outlooks to us, different political views. Dare I say those who voted the other way to us in the EU referendum or in the last election. Those of a different social class. How do we feel about those that we see as we skip through the channels and inadvertently end up on Channel 5 and see the documentary about those supposedly living the high life on benefits and not working? What's our attitude in our hearts as we see that? Maybe the other way around. Those we see who are very wealthy, who are very well off. What's our attitude in our hearts? Do we feel neighbourly and loving towards them? Those who come and live in my country, how do we feel about that? Not just in my country, perhaps, but in my backyard as well, in my street, in my home. Because Jesus is saying to love one's neighbour is to want the best for them and to help them to have the best. Not just to tolerate, but to want the best. 
We often hear the word um, tolerant bandied about. We're a tolerant society, which is a good thing. It's a positive thing. But which, surely we want to be more than someone who just tolerates, puts up with, allows something else. Do we want to be people who are compassionate and who want the best for others? So where does that leave us? We want to be people, hopefully, if we're following Christ and we're following his teachings, to welcome all into our communities, whoever they are, whatever their outlook is, whatever their beliefs are, whatever their background is, into our communities and especially into our church. We want it to be a place where we share God's love freely for all. It might be a case of, like the Samaritan did, offering practical or physical assistance to those that we see in need around us, supporting others that work with those that are disadvantaged, getting involved ourselves, maybe as simple as just actually chatting with somebody who's sitting on the street asking us for money, getting involved with their life. Maybe we could acknowledge how we view others that are different to ourselves. If we're honest with ourselves, there's always going to be someone that we have an attitude such as these hearers would have had against other people. We need to pray for ourselves that we'd view everyone in God's sight as people made in God's image. And if you were here last week and listened to Richard's sermon, he talked about the parable of the sower and the weeds growing up in our lives and not allowing us to be fruitful. And some of those weeds can be holding on to a kind of bitterness and hurt and um, unforgiveness in our hearts. And that's something that we can really pray that God helps us to release, that we might be fruitful in our lives. And finally, it's been said that if you really want to know what the parable is all about, take a view from the ditch. The person that often gets overlooked, actually. This is the person that probably the Jewish hearers would have identified with the most. Not the priest, not the Levite, not the Samaritan, but actually the ordinary Jewish guy who all he was doing was travelling down and got beaten up and robbed and laid in the ditch. And it's been said, if you want to know this parable, look at it from the view of the man in the ditch. Everything looks different when you're dying with people blaming you for taking this road in the first place and no one wants to help you or hear your humble cries. The world looks different when you're the one dying in the ditch. And actually looking at from his point of view and realizing that he had nothing that he could do to save himself, to look after himself, he needed to rely on someone else to help him is a great parallel and illustration of what Christ has done for us. As we looked um, last year at one of the Psalms, Psalm 40, and the psalmist talks about being in a pit and needing rescuing, spiritually rescuing, and God taking us. Christ's love given for us on the cross. He lifted me out of the pit. God's free grace, his free love, nothing that we can do, nothing that we can earn, coming to church, being a good person, reading the Bible, praying, all great things, but it doesn't in and of itself bring us into a relationship with that loving God, our Heavenly Father. We need to accept what he's done for us on the cross his blood shed for us, that we trust in him and follow him with our lives, accepting his free gift of love for ourselves. And we're going to come into